All right. Thank you all so much for coming out today. Um, it's my first time at Port Fest. I got here this morning. I'm already having a great time. It's been great to see some friends and also put some names to Twitter handles. Uh, there's a lot of people I only knew from Twitter for quite a while who I've uh, gotten to meet for the first time today, and that's been great. So I want to talk about Russiagate today, and particularly the impact it's had on the American people and how it's influenced America's foreign policy. So while the importance of Russiagate to U.S. foreign policy cannot be understated, it is important to note that the road to hostilities with Moscow has stretched beyond the current administration. While the collapse of the Soviet Union ushered in the prospects of peace and the American people saw it as an opportunity for peace and trade among superpowers, the U.S. foreign policy establishment saw it as an opportunity for unfettered and unchallenged uh, capitulation from every other country on the globe. The American people wanted to reduce spending. They saw the opportunity for a better world and the U.S. foreign policy establishment wanted to reshape the globe. For years, the blob largely had its way. Control over Russian elections, a series of color-coded revolutions, wars to create new countries in Eastern Europe, and NATO expansion into former USSR states. While the Kremlin may have chafed at some of these moves, it was largely compliant. The American people were blissfully unaware that any of this was happening. However, Washington became bolder and started to cross Russian red lines. Predictably, including by members of the foreign policy establishment that had helped craft American foreign policy during the Cold War, uh, the U.S. violated several of Moscow's red lines, including by provoking attacks in South Ossetia, placing strategic assets in Eastern Europe, and a withdrawal from arms control agreements, uh, allow, uh, announcing a plan to have Georgia and Ukraine join NATO, carrying out two successful coup attempts in Kiev, and attempting to overthrow the Syrian government with a band of jihadist thugs. Russia, in response, took a chunk of Georgian territory, annexed Crimea, and prevented the uh, fall of the Syrian government. While Russia's actions here were all predictable reactions to what the U.S. was doing. The, these, uh, these steps by Russia were portrayed as Russian aggression to the American people who had no idea that the U.S. had provoked all these, uh, all these actions. Unquestionably, from the fall of the Berlin Wall until the day Trump took office, the U.S. maintained an aggressive policy towards Moscow. But with the USSR wiped off the map and communism defeated for good, a, su a sufficient pretext to rally the American public into another world Cold War was missing until the Trump era. In the 30-year period since the collapse of the USSR, Washington has pursued one disastrous uh, intervention after another in the Middle East, leaving little space or interest for another round of brinksmanship with the Russians. It was not until the Rus Russiagate, a conspiracy theory invented within the Clinton administration, nearly three years, ne nearly three decades later, were the American people convinced they once again had an enemy in the Kremlin. It has been seven years since the myth of Rus Trump-Russia collusion made its debut in American politics. It has generated endless story streams of stories in the corporate press and hundred allegations of conspiracy from pundits and officials. But, Despite all these stories, it has only netted a series of embarrassing omissions, editorial notes, corrections, and retractions in that time. 
Over the years, the highly elaborate Russiagate narrative has fallen away piece by piece. Claims that Donald Trump had a bad channel to Moscow through Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, or the Alpha Bank have all been thoroughly discredited. The House Intelligence Committee transcripts reveal that nobody who asserted that Russia had the Democratic computers, including the DNC's own cybersecurity firm, have any evidence whatsoever that this actually occurred. In fact, it's now clear that the entire investigation into the Trump campaign was without basis. It was alleged that Moscow manipulated the president with compromise and blackmailed, sold to the public in a dossier compiled by former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele. Steele was hired by the Democrats to dig up dirt on Trump, gathering a litany of accusations that Steele's own primary subsource dismissed as rumor and hearsay. Though the FBI was aware the dossier was little more than sloppy opposition research, the Bureau nonetheless used it to obtain warrants to spy on the Trump campaign. Even the claim that Trump helped Russia helped Trump from afar without direct coronation has fallen flat on its face. They pushed the idea that the Internet Research Agency, a Russian, quote, troll farm, allegedly tapped by Putin, waged an information war and a meme war on behalf of Donald Trump. While the, uh, there was over $80 million spent in the 2016 presidential election. These ads accounted for only 46,000 on Facebook, around 0.5% of the total ads, and most of them had nothing to do with politics whatsoever, and more than half of them ran after the election actually occurred, meaning that it could have had no impact on the American voters. Though few of its most diehard proponents would ever admit it, seven long years later, the foundation of the Russiagate narrative has finally collapsed and crumbled. However, the wreckage of that narrative is going to continue to impact American policy. So to kind of compare how the U.S. policy on Russia has evolved and Russiagate's impact, it's important to look back at the Obama administration. Uh, when Obama first ran for president, he ran on better elections with uh, Russia. In fact, one of the Obama's first foreign policy initiatives was conducting the Russian reset. According to an official White House statement, this is what uh, President Obama believed about the U.S. relationship with Moscow. He sought to reset relations with Russia and reverse what he described as a dangerous drift in the important bilateral relationship. President Obama and his administration have sought to engage the Russian government to pursue foreign policy goals of common interest, win-win outcomes that benefit both the American and Russian people. In fact, the New START Treaty was uh, set up and negotiated under the Obama administration that put caps on nuclear weapons between the two states and in, uh, installed an important inspections regime that was able to allow Moscow and Washington to be very comfortable that uh, that you know the other side was complying with this and it wasn't until earlier this year that that agreement finally crumbled We also at this time had Russia supporting the American war on terror including by arming the Afghan army that the US was trying to build during Obama's second run for president one of the more infamous moments uh, of his uh, campaign against Mitt Romney was a debate where Mitt Romney identified Russia as the main threat to Americans. And Obama said, the 1980s are now calling to ask you for their foreign policy bat because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. However, Obama's promises did not match his actual policy. When protests erupted in Ukraine in late 2013, following President Viktor Yanukovych's refusal to sign an agreement with the Euro European Union, 
uh, uh, the U.S. bat the protest movement that was infested with neo-Nazis. While a lot of the protesters are, were out there with legitimate grievances about repression of freedoms and corruption among Yanukovych's government, the U.S. backed extremist groups and propelled them into power. We even have leaders of these groups admitting that this would have been akin to a gay pride parade if it wasn't for the white nationalist violence driving Yanukovych from power. And so this coup set off a uh, serious unrest in Ukraine. It led to serious reprisals against ethnic Russians living in Ukraine and led Putin to annex the Crimean Peninsula and bad separatists in Ukraine's east. So at this time, we have actual acknowledgement that yes, there are a lot of Ukraine's, uh, Nazis in Ukraine's armed forces. In fact, this is an article that James Cardin wrote in The Nation in 2016, which is a pretty mainstream liberal outlet. And he says, yet some have expressed concern that some of the non-lethal aid that Obama has been uh, providing to Ukraine has made its way into the hands of neo-Nazis, such as the Azov Battalion and so last year, Congressman John Conyers of Michigan and Ted Yoho of Florida drew up an amendment for the, to the House Defense Appropriation Bill to limit arms going to the Azov Battalion. So we have bipartisan consensus, full unanimous consensus within Congress when this motion passed that yes, there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine and we have to prevent ourselves from arming them. However, this was removed from the Defense Appropriations Bill after protests by uh, the, the Pentagon. At the same time, the Obama administration was carrying out a covert CIA uh, plan with the CIA ground branch, and what they were doing was training some of these Ukrainian extremists to carry out counterinsurgency tactics once Russia would eventually invade Ukraine. And that program just ended uh, at, at some point under the Biden administration. So we now have the, the kind of the policy set under the Obama administration, and let's see how it evolves under the Trump administration, who Trump, like Obama, ran on a policy of getting along better with Russia. He wanted to reform the relationship, work with Putin, uh, that he saw common enemies at, that Russia has in the Middle East, such as Syria, talked about you know carrying out negotiations to try to have the two countries work together. However, with the hysteria of Russiagate, uh, we saw the political, uh, consensus in America, the, the political spectrum in America just wasn't having it. So one example of this is during a debate on the Senate floor over Montenegro's NATO bid in March of 2017, the hawkish John McCain castigated Rand Paul for daring to uh, oppose the measure and suggested that Rand Paul was working with Vladimir Putin. Apparently, Donald Trump saw this because once that bill came to his desk, he went ahead and signed it. And as a candidate, when Trump was running, he was talking about NATO being obsolete and identifying a lot of problems in NATO. And Montenegro certainly exemplifies a lot of those problems as being a very small country, a lot of corruption. It has no ability to help America in its defense. It's only a commitment for America to have to defend another country. Just a few months later, the Trump administration put out its national security strategy, stressing the need for the U.S. to focus on military engagements from counter-to refocus from military engagements uh, dealing with counterterrorism to uh, the great power competition with Russia and China. So we already see Trump shifting his strategy to be more confrontational with Russia. 
On another aspiring NATO member, Ukraine, the president also was hectored into reversing course from Obama's decision. See, Obama refused to provide lethal arms to Ukraine, in part under the fear it would escalate tensions with Russia and also that these arms would flow to the Azov Battalion neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And so Trump reversed course in late 2017 and started sending Javelin missiles to Kiev. Matthew Ho, who was a Pentagon whistleblower and who tried to prevent the Obama surge in Afghanistan, explained that this was extremely significant to Russia. Matthew Ho says, this was interpreted by Russia as an indication of the US preference for conflict and the possibility of, of, of preparation for war. Um, and then, in an irony that few noticed, some of the arms went to open neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And so with Trump, we had this president and there's this collective freak out among the Democrats in this country that Trump is a neo-Nazi, that all of his supporters are white supremacists, and none of that was true. However, Trump was sending arms to Ukraine, a policy that the foreign policy establishment said Trump had no choice but to go through with. And in that case, he was actually helping in arming neo-Nazis. So, while Trump had already started to walk back on his campaign promises, he fully caved in 2018, and this came with his uh, summit with Vladimir Putin in July of that year. When Trump went to that summit, the Mueller uh, probe was in full swing, and so this was a point in American politics that because Robert Mueller is investigating possible collusion between Trump and Russia, any assertion that the mainstream media puts out there instantly has credibility because Trump is already being investigated for this. And even though Mueller knew very early on that there was no ties whatsoever between Trump and Moscow, he never told the American people that until his investigation finally concluded. So uh, when Trump went to Helsinki to meet with Vladimir Putin, he was uh, interrogated by the US media about why he didn't and wasn't more confrontational with Vladimir Putin on the claims of election hacking, which we of course now know are all false. And this uh, went had former CIA director John Brennan declared the meeting itself an act of treason, while CNN mindlessly speculated whether Trump's gift to Putin during the meeting, which was a FIFA soccer ball because uh, Russia was holding, hosting the World Cup that year, was really a secret spying transmitter that would allow Trump to somehow communicate messages to Vladimir Putin. So, Though the summit did little to strengthen U.S.-Russian ties, and Trump made no real effort to do so, it brought some of the most extreme uh, attacks yet, further ratcheting up the cost of rapprochement. The window of opportunity presented in Helsinki, while only cracked in the first place, was now firmly shut, with Trump as reluctant as ever to make good on any of his original foreign policy platform. After taking a beating in Helsinki, the administration allowed tensions with Moscow to soar to new heights, more or less embracing the blob's favored policies and often even outdoing the Obama government's hawkishness towards Russia in both rhetoric and action. In 2018, there was a poisoning of a former Russian spy living in the UK. This is Sergei Skripal. And the West came up with this very elaborate narrative about how this super Soviet uh, bioweapon called a Novachok agent was used to poison Skripal and his daughter Yulia. Now, despite this being the most uh, deadly poison known to man, they both made a full recovery, as well as the police officer who also was exposed, but then several months later, the perfume bottle that was used 
allegedly to poison the Skripals was interacted with uh, by, I believe, a homeless person, and that person succumbed to it. And that's the alleged story of how Russia poisoned uh, Sergei Skripal. However, while this was absolutely basis, the Trump administration unleashed brutal retaliation on Russia at the time for this, expelling 60 diplomats. Now, this is an example of Trump just not being a very good president, not assembling a cabinet around him to actually give him correct information, because Trump was told that the U.S. was expelling the same number of diplomats as other countries. So what he assumed was the U.S. was expelling 60 diplomats. That means the U.K. was expelling 60 diplomats. That's not what happened. The UK and all of our NATO allies expelled a total of 60 Russian diplomats, and then Trump authorized that, believing we were expelling that many. And that's how uh, you know his administration and the people around him got that to be so stiff. Uh, Trump then also started using sanctions against Russia, and while as a candidate he talked about lifting sanctions on Moscow, he included several rounds of sanctions on Russia, and this include uh, this is just a list of sanctions that I recently put together that Trump uh, put out on Russia, and these are the reasons for it including responses to worldwide malign activity, whatever that means, to penalize alleged election meddling that didn't happen, for destabilizing cyber activities, which they never proved, retaliation for the UK spy poisoning, which again didn't happen, more cyber activities, and more election meddling. Though Trump had called to lift rather than impose penalties on Russia before taking office, worn down by the drumbeat of Russiagate, he caved and started applying a lot of economic penalties. By October of 2018, Trump had largely abandoned any idea of improving the relationship with Russia, and in addition to the barrage of sanctions, began shredding a series of major treaties and arms control agreements with Russia. This included the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaties and the Open Sky Treaty. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or the INF Treaty, eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons and took Europe away as a theater of, for fight in a, in a possible nuclear war. What had happened was Trump had made his national security advisor at this point, John Bolton, who has a history of ripping up and destroying arms control agreements. Russia had made a short-range weapon capable of carrying a nuclear missile, and John Bolton alleged that this missile violated the treaty by about 30 miles. Uh, Russia said that didn't happen and offered to settle this dispute through mechanisms set up in the INF Treaty, but Washington refused and unilaterally withdrew, and just months later began testing those missiles that were explicitly banned under the treaty. The Open Skies Treaty was the brainchild of President Eisenhower, but was finally signed in 1992 between the US and former Warsaw Pact nations. What that treaty did is set up overflights between the countries and ensured that everybody was complying with agreements. There was a minor dispute in this. Again, the Trump administration, rather than trying to use the dispute mechanisms, unilaterally withdrew from the agreement, and then the Biden administration said that we would not be returning to it. The absolute pinnacle of the Russia hysteria was, of course, the first Trump impeachment, where they turned Russiagate into Ukraine Gate. And at this time, Aaron Mate, one of the best journalists covering uh, the Russiagate saga, dubbed it Blue Anon. And this is a, a playoff of QAnon because it, it turned out that for the US liberal, particularly liberal mainstream media, anything was evidence that there was a grand conspiracy. So the fact that they couldn't find evidence 
of Trump-Russia collusion meant that the collusion was just that deep and had stretched that far back in history. So what happened was there was a call between Trump and Zelensky, who was recently elected at that time in 2016. A whistleblower, quote-unquote whistleblower, who was actually a CIA employee, detailed to the White House, came forward with an urgent concern that the president had abused his office on the July call. According to his complaint, Trump threatened to withhold U.S. military aid as well as a face-to-face -face meeting with Zelensky should Kiev fail to deliver the goods on Biden, who by that point was a major political contender for the 2020 race. The same players who pushed Russiagate seized on Cheramella's account to manufacture the whole Ukraine gate scandal. So the point of the Mueller probe was to lead to an impeachment of Donald Trump. Didn't happen because the conspiracy wasn't there. So what they ended up doing was inventing Russiagate and trying to remove Trump that way. And just like with Russiagate, the point of Ukraine gate, if they couldn't use it to remove Trump from office, they could use it to hem in his foreign policy. And this is what we saw during the Senate testimony. Fiona Hill, uh, who is a U.S. foreign policy apparatchik, very involved in fo forming U.S. foreign policy, particularly under the Biden administration, admitted that it was the U.S. policy to fight Russia over there, meaning Ukraine, so that we didn't have to fight them over here. And that there really wasn't an option. Trump had to send those arms to Ukraine despite him being president. It's truly the foreign policy establishment that sets U.S. policy, and they said that those weapons had to go. So that's what we had to do. So now we're at a point where the two major U.S. political parties have become locked in a cycle of permanent escalation, internally compelled to prove who is the bigger hawk. Trump put up mild resistance during his first months in office, but the relentless drumbeat of Russiagate successfully crushed any chances of improved ties with Moscow. The Democrats refused to give up on the Russian aggression narrative and see virtually no pushback from hawks across the aisle. And intelligence leads continue to come out with made-up stories such as Bountygate. If you remember, as Trump was trying to remove U.S. troops from Afghanistan late in his administration, suddenly we had this story that the Kremlin is paying the Taliban to kill American soldiers. While no evidence was ever put forward for this, we were um, told that this was happening and that this meant that Russia was our enemy and that we couldn't leave Afghanistan. It just so happens that around the same time Joe Biden decided that he was going to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, that this was actually a story that was just fabricated by Afghan intelligence and had no basis in reality. So. While Trump had vowed to revamp U.S.-Russia ties during his election, those promises are long dead along with his presidency, and really all he was able to, you know, put forward as far as his Russia policy was a pile of new sanctions, dozens of expelled diplomats, two major arms control treaties destroyed, and begin arming uh, the Ukrainian military. And for all of his talk to get along with Putin, Trump didn't ink a single deal with the leader, de-escalate any of the ongoing strife in Syria, Libya, and of course Ukraine, and has been unable to arrange and was unable to arrange a single state visit in Moscow or DC. And there was a very interesting comment by Zelensky last week to NBC News, where Zelensky was responding to a question about Trump saying that if he were elected president, he would immediately withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. And Zelensky said, well, if Trump could do that, he would have done it 
I, sorry, that if Trump was elected, he would immediately negotiate with the Kremlin to end the war in Ukraine. And Zelensky said, well, Trump could do that. He would have negotiated while he was president to end the war in Ukraine. And this has a couple interesting points to it. One is Zelensky admits that the war in Ukraine was going on long before the Russian aggression, uh, the Russian invasion, and the whole called provoked narrative seems to fall apart then. Uh, but he also does point to something very important here, that Trump's true policy when it came to Ukraine was one of uh, hawkish and supporting a policy that would eventually lead to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So uh, Joe Biden is the first president really since the end of the Cold War who ran on a campaign of a more hostile policy with Russia. And while he did come into office and extend the New START Treaty, which has since fallen apart, uh, which, which was a good move, he has been one of the most aggressive uh, presidents against Russia. And it's largely backed by a huge portion of the American political consensus who believe that uh, Russia meddled in the U.S. election and uh, has been interfering and carrying out a campaign uh, to try to destabilize the democratic world. All right, so I just want to mention here that we now have the Durham report that came out very recently, and there's a great summary of it by Peter Van Buren, who's a State Department whistleblower uh, about the Iraq war, but he uh, puts together a very short summary of what the Durham report was, and he says this, the short summary of Durham, willingly or via incredible sloppiness, the, U the FBI participated in an information operation first designed to keep Donald Trump out of the White House and failing that to drive him from office. The op was funded by the Clinton campaign, which paid former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele to create a dossier, a report based on Russian disinformation and uh, funneled to him by Igor Danchenko. And it's also important to note that John Durham identifies that the FBI paid Danchenko $220,000 and wanted to pay him another $300,000, even though he was never able to corroborate a single uh, salacious story from the Steele report. Without vetting the disinformation, the FBI used the dossier, along with a trip from a shady Australian diplomat, to open up a full-spectrum surveillance operation of the, down, of the Donald Trump campaign, lying to the FISA court along the way. This was the first known time such a thing has been undertaken in American political history. The goal was to show collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. When that failed, the FBI pivoted into providing the bulk of the data behind the Mueller report. The report was designed to take down Trump via impeachment or indictment, but should that fail, it was meant to disempower him or much of his foreign policy. So what uh, Steele did for the Clinton campaign, uh, Peter Van Buren describes as absolutely invaluable because he created this dossier filled with salacious information that couldn't be vetted, it was based on rumors, and then he fed that uh, to the U.S. intelligence community. And then when the U.S. media heard reports of that, he went to the U.S. media and said, oh, I've heard these things too. And he is actually confirming himself. He's creating an information loop. The, and everybody thinks it's true because it's coming from the government and the U.S. media. But really, it's just Christopher Steele who's putting this together. And of course, I'm going to wrap up here and then open up to questions with the ultimate irony that 
we have this various huge scandal against Donald Trump that he cooperated with a foreign agent to win the 2016 election when it was really the Clinton campaign who paid Christopher Steele, a former MI6 officer, a, a British man, to come up with this fake dossier. Then they used the FBI to wage a campaign against Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton almost won the election because of this. She almost won the election. And then they almost stopped Trump from becoming president. And then they almost impeached Donald Trump with this. But they absolutely reigned in his foreign policy. Hi, just a kind of a basic uh, bibliographical question. Um, I personally don't know too much about Russiagate. Uh, I mean, I, you know, most of what you said was familiar, but I don't have any deep understanding. So two questions. One, if I would like to read more in some depth, but not, you know, gigantic depth, do you have any recommendations? And number two, uh, would that be the same piece that would be good for recommending for other people who are kind of under a misconception, but maybe don't have quite as much time? I there's a, a pretty recent article by Peter Van Buren that's at the Ron Paul Institute, and he also gave a speech at the uh, Ron Paul Institute conference in June on the Durham report. And I think that does a, he does a pretty good summary there because he brings in a lot of the other elements of Russiagate, you know, into the coverage of the Durham report. Uh, there's, uh, you know, obviously some people to recommend. Michael Tracy is a name, Aaron Mate, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, all did invaluable work covering this. Uh, John Solomon at the Hill uh, from a little, oh, David Stockman is another one who, who did a really good job of covering this. So those are some names to look up. There's a, a particular article by Taibbi, I think is called something along the list of the most salacious Russiagate lies. And he puts together, I, I wanna say like 15 to 20 of these stories where, you know, at one point, uh, CNN, I believe it was CNN, was a, it was either CNN or MSNBC, was alleging that Donald Trump, the Donald Trump campaign had a bad access of the DNC and the DNCCC emails from WikiLeads, but really they just had the date wrong on the email. But this was a story that got published and was in the media for several days before uh, it finally came out that no, they, they just, the date was the 24th and not the 14th or something like that. Just one more quick follow, one more quick follow on, which is, um, uh, and maybe I should ask Ray McGovern about this or something, but you, uh, I, I've heard discussion that uh, I think William Binney analyzed the rates at which information was allegedly downloaded and that it was shown to be impossible to have been an external steal. Do you, do you know if there's anything really clearly written about that particular aspect? So Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sandy, VIPS is their acronym they go by. It's a group headed by Ray McGovern. And they put out this report that says they analyzed, I believe it's the metadata of 
the DNC emails, and they believe that through that metadata, it shows that the emails were downloaded in two separate files onto a flash drive from a local computer. And that would prove that it wasn't a hat because it would happen over a longer period and slower speeds, uh, because especially if that hack was going from Washington to Moscow. Now, I, I don't want to say that I know more about the internet than Bill Binney, because I definitely don't, and he's defended his work, but I have talked to other people who are experts on computer data and stuff like that, and they tell me that that metadata can be altered, or that it could have maybe been a copy of a copy or something like that, so initially it was hacked, and then that was downloaded. I'm not trying to give any credibility. We know that Russia didn't hack this because CrowdStrike, which is the company that the DNC hired to investigate the emails being taken from their servers, the CEO of that company told Congress that they have no data whatsoever to indicate that the emails were exfiltrated at all. Not, you know, not just by Russia, but at all. So there's no evidence at all that there was a hack, but I'm not so sure that that particular uh, argument is as solid as uh, Bill Binney makes it out to be. It's actually a lot cooler up here, and there's a fan right over there. I was, uh, you know, thinking about taking out the sweatshirt before, but as soon as I saw the fan, I was like, oh, I'm going to be all right. Do you mind if I play to you a little bit? Go for it, Scott. All right. Uh, is there, uh, people talk about uh, there not being a good, uh, uh, talks between Ukraine and Russia, and it being, you know, people that kept from being at the peace table and everything. Is there any, uh, was there anything on the table that was ever been seriously considered that would have been like a good peaceful solution that did not involve giving Russia land that it conquered with like tanks and stuff so i do believe that any a way to end this war is going to Ru russia is going to maintain Cri the crimean peninsula absolutely now there's the donbass region which is made up of two republics and then there's two republics in the south of ukraine that russia has also annexed i'm not sure how much russia would be willing to negotiate if at all over any of that territory, and they may not be. It may be that TOTS are going to be Ukraine ceding about 20% of its country. Um, but we do know that there was a, a, a you know, TOTS in a deal that was potentially in place, particularly last spring, where Russia was willing to withdraw to the pre-invasion lines, and we've had confirmation from this from Turkey, the former Israeli Prime Minister, Nafali Bennett, and Fiona Hill writing in Foreign Affairs, they all said that you know that agreement was out there, and we know about that same time, uh, the, 
then Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, went to uh, Kiev and told Zelensky not to accept the deal. And the next day or two, there was a massive new arms package from the West for Ukraine. And so while there may have been a deal early in the war that would have involved Ukraine ceding far less territory, at, at this point, I, I do think we're looking at any negotiations are going to involve Ukraine giving up about that 20% of the country that Russia holds now, if not more. The Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, has said that Russia's policy is that the longer-range weapons that the West provides to Ukraine, the more Russian, uh, the more of Ukraine's territory they're going to take. And, um, you know, with the supplying of long-range missiles that they're looking at, I think they're looking at uh, rockets with a range of about 200 miles and F-16s. I'm not sure how much uh, you, Russia is going to take. Have you looked into any of the propaganda or public relations that Putin and Lavrov are using to justify the war to their own population? Yeah, I, I went through, especially after Putin announced the evasion last year, he gave a really long talk. I want to say it was well over an hour. And one of the things that I mentioned when I was breaking that down was how similar Putin's justification for the war in Ukraine sounds like America's justifications for interventions in the Middle East. He was warning about war on terror, secret biological nuclear programs in Ukraine. And I guess on the, the nuclear program in Ukraine, in some fairness, a couple weeks before the invasion, uh, Zelensky floated the idea of abandoning the Bucharest Memorandum. And that was something that um, Ukraine signed as it was giving up its nuclear weapons. And so by floating, abandoning that, Ukraine was, uh, Zelensky, at least in Moscow eyes, was suggesting that he might, you know, look at nuclear weapons. But I think that was largely propaganda. They, you know, they, well, Ukraine has been saying, they called the war in the Donbass that started in 2014 and ran up to 2020, uh, 2022 as a war on terrorism and so you know Russia used the idea that the Ukrainians were Nazis that they were terrorists and things like that so we did see a lot of similar uh, rhetoric from the US terror wars to what Russia then said to justify their invasion of Ukraine a lot of the friends that I talk to about regarding the situation they always talk about how uh, whatever the CNN talking points are, whatever the MSNBC talking points are, currently their, their line is that there is this push into Russia in order to take back land that's Russian. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what this, what this push is? I mean, I'm, I don't really pay attention to it enough to actually speak to them intelligently. Um, can you explain a little bit about what this, this like incursion into Russian territory is? Or uh, do you have any information about that? So... Ukraine has been carrying out some raids in Russian territory and carrying out some strikes against Russia. This included drone attacks on the Mosca uh, on Moscow, uh, you know, putting out that they had carried out a couple assassination attempts on Vladimir Putin. But the, the main incursions into Russia have been cross-border raids, and these have been launched by two groups working together, the Russian Volunteer Corps, which even Western media acknowledged is, is filled with neo-Nazis. And then the Russian Foreign, uh, I think it's called the Russian Foreign Legion. And the Legion is said to be more moderate, although the, I, 
I believe Washington Post just interviewed a member of the Foreign Legion earlier this week, and he admitted that he was uh, pre previously in neo-fascist militias. So it seems like the Legion is probably just as extreme as the Russian Volunteer Corps. Uh, but anyways, they've been using American weapons to carry out raids into Russia. And they, uh, the leader of the Legion actually says that the goal is to install a new Russian government and he's drawing up a new constitution. I mean, he has to know that that absolutely can't happen. Uh, you know, they're, they're carrying out minor cross-border raids one or two miles you know, across the border into Russia, but at the same time, that this is being seen as hugely provocative by Russia. And uh, a former Ukrainian intelligence official came out and uh, told, I believe, Newsweek that he thought there was going to be uh, uh, more support for this in Kiev in, in the days to come. Uh, you touched on this a little bit in your talk, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more about the narrative about Russian bots and Russian disinformation all over the internet. There's like a million and one of them during Russiagate, sort of the background to Russiagate, and then of course the censorship regime and how it was applied to Americans in the name of protecting us from Putin there. Yeah, so there's a fantastic article that's on the Moon of Alabama blog, uh, and, and this guy does really great research into Western media, particularly propaganda, and he points out and has a, the whole history of the Internet Research Agency, and this is uh, the company, Mueller indicted the parent company of the Inter Internet Research Agency, alleging they had this grand scheme to try to influence the American election by spending a few $10,000 on political ads that were in support of Trump. Now, the Internet Research Agency is said to be led by this guy called Putin's chef, when in re reality, Putin just ate at his restaurant a couple times and took a picture with him. But the other thing he did was he made really bad school lunches. And he found that kids were going on the internet and complaining about school lunches. And so rather than making better food, he found out it was a lot cheaper and easier just to smear the people that were making bad comments about uh, the, the school lunches. And so he formed the internet research agency because he found out that this was actually a very profitable thing to go on the internet and you know put out memes and generate accounts that have you know followers and then either sell those accounts or use that to sell advertisements for different things. And so that's kind of how the Internet Research Agency is formed. If anybody remembers back to 2015, 2016, and what some people like to call the Great Meme War, if you wanted to get any lights on your Facebook post, it had to be provocative and it had to include Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And so the Internet Research Agency put out some buff Bernie memes and I think put together one event that like three people showed up to uh, in Florida. But in reality, the Internet Research Agency was just a troll farm. Uh, Gareth Porter did the math and, and figured it out. It's something like the total impressions from the Internet Research Agency's all of their all of their posts, not just the ones about about politics, was like 0.001% of what Americans saw during election season. He calculated that only the 46,000 that the Internet Research Agency spent was 0.05% of the total campaign funds. And so this is absolutely marginal. And then another big thing is that these memes were not pro-Trump, a lot of them were puppy memes or other things that people would click on and share because, again, they were just going to try to add followers to these accounts so they could later sell the accounts or uh, objects to people later. And then uh, another important thing is most of these uh, were not 
bought. So with Facebook, you could be very specific calculating like how you want your ads and where you want them to go. Not, almost none of these ads, none of the money was spent in swing states. I think like $2,000 was spent in the entire state of Pennsylvania and most of the money was spent after the election. So if you're spending money on the same ads after the election as before, it would really suggest that your goal wasn't to influence the election, it was just to get clicks and likes on Facebook. Hey Kyle, it seems like how people view the conflict now is very tied into this like kind of ongoing debate about how people view the beginning of the conflict with people like Douglas McGregor saying that uh, Russia was fighting a much more constrained war than they could have at the outset of the conflict and the kind of the NAFO fellas uh, saying that like Russia was really intent on seizing Kiev and failed. Um, what do you think is the more accurate version of how that happened? I, I think it's the McGregor version, and, and part of that is because uh, there is an article in Newsweek by Will Arkin where he interviews people uh, that are part of the U.S. Defense Department who come out and say that they, are, they were surprised at how restrained Russia was. And also, if you just look at how the wars progressed, uh, there was a time where Russia really wasn't carrying out attacks on civil, uh, civilian targets in Ukraine, certainly not mass-scale attacks on infrastructure designed to knock out power and things like that. And then after the Kerch Strait bridge bombing, this is the bridge that connects mainland Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, and there was a bomb detonated on it, I want to say around September of last year, and after that, Russia really stepped up their attacks. And we had the, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline around the same time. No, I would look like spring of Feb of 2022. I don't think he, he doesn't write that often in Newsweek, so if you look at his archive from early 22, you should should be able to find that one. Yeah, and also, I, I mean, Putin just put out this document, and I'm not sure, I'm sure that if Russia really believed that they were going to take Kiev or were, were going to do it easily, they probably wouldn't have pulled back, but Trump, um, Putin just had a meeting with uh, several African leaders, and these uh, African leaders are trying to put together a dialogue to end the war. Uh, Africa has been particularly harmed by the war with the Western sanctions on Russia and the fighting in Ukraine. A lot of the food, agricultural products that come out of this region in the world are being hampered, and so. Uh, you know, Africa is really incentivized on ending this. And Putin showed a document to these leaders alleging having a signature from the Ukrainian negotiator that Russia would pull back its troops from around Kiev and then they would begin the process of diplomacy. Ukraine would de declare neutrality and Russia would, would further pull back its troops as time came. Uh, again, I really imagine that Putin probably felt that those troops were overextended in Ukraine if he was willing to pull them back so early and prematurely before Ukraine was really committed to following through with that agreement. But it, you know, it is interesting that that does seem to have been on the table. And if it wasn't for Boris Johnson going to Kiev and talking to Zelensky, that we, we could have had that agreement and the war could have been over in a couple months.
Between uh, Trump, Biden, Kennedy, and Dave Smith, with, which one of those four statist-ass people do you think would have the most positive effect on the situation with Ukraine and Russia? Oh, definitely Dave Smith. The primary claim that the Warhawks will use is that, well, if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, he will move east, take over Western Europe, and then eventually America. They also say the same about China. And they always invoke the National Socialists from Germany to say, if you don't uh, take them on, then they're just going to end up coming for you. Are there any counter-historical examples that we can point to of when the West or America showed restraint when an aggressor existed and things did not turn out terribly bloody? Well, I can't think of a, an example, I guess, but off the top of my head, of course, everybody is Hitler always, right? And Vladimir Putin pretty clearly isn't Hitler in the way he's been waging this war. And also, the, the Hots like to have this two ways, right? At the same time, Russia is, you know, this terrible military that can't even take 20% of Ukraine, but is somehow going to then take Ukraine and threaten Poland, invade Poland and NATO. Um, and then at the same time, you, you also could just look at the history and the rhetoric coming from Moscow. You know, even though they didn't like all these former Warsaw Pact and USSR states joining NATO, they allowed it to happen. It wasn't until Ukraine, which Russia had long identified as a unique security threat and a, a particular red line, did they take any action. And so I think if we look at the Russian rhetoric, it's pretty clear that they are particularly concerned about Ukraine in a way they're not, say, concerned about Poland or another NATO state. So I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, about how Russiagate affected Trump's, how it affected military exercises in Russia's near abroad with NATO, um, and how Russiagate affected that, and then how, what the future of these kinds of exercises will be with the, uh, or how, how, that's, how they've been carried out, if there's been any changes since the war started, since yeah. Russia's invasion. I appreciate that, Connor, because this is probably something I just should have had in my speech, that one of the things that Trump really did that really upset Russia was carry out war games, but also allow Ukraine to host NATO war games. And uh, th there were several of these rounds of war games that were carried out, and each time Russia would protest saying that the U.S. was secretly smuggling weapons into Ukraine through these war games. I'm not sure to what extent that's true, but you know, we did see the Ukrainian army, which in 2014, 2015, everybody thought if Russia invaded Ukraine, they would roll right over the Ukrainian army, put up some very stiff resistance to, you know, the, the Russian invasion and the Russian forces. And that's probably because of all the training they did with NATO forces over that time and uh, the, you know, equipment that the U.S. poured in. So. All right, thank you everyone. I really appreciate you all coming out.